you see that fucking uh, Bolsonaro just refused to speak to the press after losing yesterday? No, I didn't. He went see to that. bed. He went he to just sleep. Had, he was had, he was a sleepy boy. Hasn't like the fact that he hasn't conceded didn't surprise me. But he hasn't even he hasn't like made a defiant statement or anything. He just like cut off all communication with everyone. You know, if I just pretend it's not happening, you know, then it can go away. Yeah, well, I've said it before and I'll say it again now. Jair Bolsonaro has divorced dad about to lose his job energy. And there's no two ways about it. (laughs) I don't know if it's all that COVID or if he's just naturally like that, but (laughs) it could be either. (laughs) Yeah, like I will say, I don't know how many different accounts that I saw that were all immediately tweeting like, well, hey, now Jair Bolsonaro can get back to his, his, you know, favorite lifelong uh, dream, which is continuing to contract and be hospitalized for the novel coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, well, it is nice to know that Lula is a stronger opponent than a deadly virus. Jair <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Bolsonaro beat COVID like seven or eight times and then got beat by Lula. And also, I mean, like, one thing that does kind of worry me is it was not a, a, a landslide by any means. It was a no. relatively tight election. It was pretty close. Yeah, and, that's um, also, we have to consider that there were like hundreds of, of street blockades that were stopping people from voting. Mm-hmm. They And they put out many calls to basically say, oh, yeah, all the people who are pro-Bolsonaro vote as early as possible because the repression's going to ramp up through the day. Well, and it's also like... Um, well, like one, we've also been seeing that here in the U.S. I try not to follow too many accounts that are like fussing over the midterms all the time. But I have seen reports of people who are like arming themselves and sitting in trucks near ballot boxes and polling places and stuff. And it's like, you know, that's probably not good. But also like in uh, in Brazil, it's Bolsonaro has been amping up to refuse to leave the office for Mm -hmm. a long time he's been acting like he's he's doing the trump thing i mean like Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate how one-to-one he's stealing the playbook but it does seem like that's exactly what he's doing and what you're pointing out there with people like preparing with weapons and vehicles is like is like early organizing similar to like how you know the uprising in 2020 was not a you know spontaneous uprising it was a culmination of years and years of organizing whether it be from you know just like you occupy even though how much of a failure that was and and all of the different ways in which people learn to organize and and so what this is is this is a fascist analog to that where you know they're basically saying all right so we're preparing for the future when we are going to do some really straight up fucking awful repression yeah and it's it has all been interesting to watch. Like the U.S. basically came out immediately and recognized Lula's win, which I think is 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 mostly like an acknowledgement that the U.S. is really tied up right now, trying mm-hmm. to fight Russia in Ukraine and fight China at the same time, which is a very stupid move. But like, uh, I think more like not so much a recognition that like the U.S. is happy that Lula's in there, but more that like they know that Lula is centrist enough that he's like he's not going to launch, you know, the Brazilian socialist revolution and they don't, and the the CIA just literally like doesn't have the munitions and stuff to, to do a full coup again. Well, I I mean, at the risk of getting too far out in the weeds, it seems like U S policy in South and Central America has just been 
a lot less hostile recently because we are terrified of what our position on the global stage is going to be like. We just reaffirmed Pedro Castillo's presidency and the o- the fucking OAS actually <laughs> vowed to make sure that any corrupt people who were trying to oust him would be properly investigated in Peru. Who knows if they really will or not, but they did they made a movement to do that. In Washington, D.C., I think just last week, and then not that long ago when the whole Ukraine thing started kicking off, the U.S. was like, hey, Venezuela, we'll be a little friendly to you right now for no reason, no reason in particular. (laughs) Well, and this also, I mean, this goes back to how, like, the Soviet Union was one of the greatest, you know, boons to socialism around the world in that, like, the U.S. was so focused, like, hyper-focused on destroying the Soviet Union that, like, China had a lot of a lot more, you know, ability to to develop their uh, their socialist project and and other things like that as well. So, I mean, with the the hyper focus on the Ukraine war and fighting with Russia and China, I think that Latin America is going to see a, at least a minor reprieve from that U.S. state repression. I mean, we do only have so many CIA agents, right? Uh, <laughs> speaking <laughs> of only having so many CIA agents. <laughs> Your, uh, your favorite the, geopolitics podcast. <laughs> this is where our our transitions into the show lately have been really. <laughs> to, uh, I don't know. This they're 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 definitely jokes, folks. They, Happy Halloween, yeah. everybody! Your hosts are dressed up as CIA agents this week. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually an NSA agent posing as a CIA agent. <laughs> it's a very complicated costume. Uh, my name's John. I'm Dan, and I am Lena. And we are an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for your contributions on Patreon. If you're not in the Discord already, get in there. It's completely free. If you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and we will get them to you as soon as we can. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or you can mention us in your five-star review of your favorite Halloween movie online. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. That's pretty We're good. Get all our new listeners through letterboxed reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess in our first story, we're going to be following up with the Trader Joe's United movement, where they have lost their third election in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where the vote ended up uh, 94 to 66, unfortunately, mostly due to the company's really increased repression and union busting that has been going on. Uh, This is, you know, after we had seen the victories in Hadley, Massachusetts and Minneapolis, uh, really hoping for like just a a continued wave. But, you know, when it comes to the way that, you know, I guess Trader Joe's has taken a a play out of Starbucks's book, uh, their repression has done a has made a significant blow to the Trader Joe's United movement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. It seems like Trader Joe's is moving a lot faster and more aggressively than Starbucks uh, even had a chance to because they shut down that Manhattan wine store right Right. after a union there built uh, majority support. 
And then they're also actively using Starbucks's war against its workers to intimidate their own workers into voting against the unions because they gave all their workers anti-union flyers, which implied that unionizing would be futile. <laughs> I love it when my manager is a Star Trek enemy, citing the example <laughs> of Starbucks. Or is that Doctor Who? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you had it right the first the time. The flyer said, at Starbucks, the first stores went union in December 2021 and to date have no contract and have reported very little progress. Okay, one, yeah, they don't have a contract. Contracts take a while. And two, have reported very little progress. That's a yeah, straight that's up lie. that's just untrue, yeah. That's just not true at all. Yeah. Because yeah. that's also, one of those, I mean, I mean it, should be unsurprisingly... Illegal. Yeah, the thing that's left out of all, because this is not the first company that we've seen try and use either, say, you know, the Starbucks Workers United movement or the ALU at JFK 8 as an example to say, see, look, these people, yeah, they won their union election and they don't have a contract, leaving out the fact that it's like how many raises across the thousands and thousands of stores at Starbucks have happened purely because of the company trying to stave off the union drive, like changes to mm -hmm. benefits and all of these different things that have only happened because of the organizing efforts of the workers. But well, and e even less visible things like how many schedules have been fixed, how many right. health hazards have been cleaned up, how many dangerous, you know, uh, uh, unsafe stores that are falling apart have been fixed. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like I have said many times, uh, this idea that it is futile to organize is really just the company saying we will never give in we will repress mm -hmm. you until you know you lose this is literally a, a an admission of bad faith the intent to bargain in bad faith and to attack workers rights and i also do think though that it points to exactly why it's so important for all of the unions, and this is not just the ones that are directly involved with organizing at Starbucks or Amazon, that they, you know, get off their asses and throw their weight behind these movements and provide resources and money and people because, like, these are tentpole projects, like organizing mm -hmm. Starbucks, organizing Amazon. These make a nationwide impact. Like, how many people have we talked about who've said that it, like people at Chipotle, people at Home Depot, people at so many of the, at Apple, all of these different places at REI who have said a big part of the inspiration for us to unionize was seeing Starbucks and Amazon. And the bosses clearly know that. That's why they're, you know, waging these all out wars against their workers. And that's why it's so important that we do everything we can as the working class to make sure these workers win. Because if that doesn't happen, it becomes all the more easy for companies to do shit like this, to put out union flyers and say, look, these people tried to unionize, they were all in the news, and then nothing happened. And so it's like, yeah, they're 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 leaving out an enormous amount of facts. They're, they're spinning everything for their mm -hmm. own uses. But at the same time, that just underlines like why we really have to be putting in all the effort and why it's frustrating to see like, because, you know, we'll see some of the unions that are in like the AFL-CIO just be like, yay, and then not actually do anything to like help the organizing effort. And so, yeah, I mean, this this loss is frustrating because like in addition to like genuflecting towards the, the Starbucks campaign and, and using tactics brought from that, uh, there was also just, as John mentioned, you know, the closing of that that liquor store that they had operated in Manhattan. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the illegal firing of one of the lead organizers at the Brooklyn store aimed at, of course, you know, intimidating the workers and silencing 
militant workers there. And of course, you know, the union filed ULPs against Trader Joe's for the filing, but this is yet another case of like showing the toothlessness of, of U.S. labor law because like even if they get a ruling and, and, and she gets her job back, like it's going to be months later and the election's already like lost at this point. So again, it's not the end. They can, they can organize, they can mm-hmm. continue to fight this and Hey, we may be back here again next year at like same time and hearing that, Hey, this story is now unionized. Cause they had a second election, but yeah, it wouldn't be the first time. It's just so frustrating that like the company can do all this illegal shit that clearly is going to influence the election. And the worst thing that happens to them is they then have to like hire that person back. And in a really extreme case, maybe they have to rerun the election, in which case they have like a 90% chance of winning again. So mm-hmm. uh, just, I don't know. It's another one of those things where it's like, we can't rely on the NLRB process uh, because it's too slow and it's not built for us ultimately. Right. Well, yeah. Speaking, speaking of, of not being built for, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of the NLRA not being built for uh, this process, we're going to be following up on the rail, the pending possible railway strike that could be happening as early as, uh, I guess it's we're recording this on Halloween, so I guess n- not this or this month, but you know, uh, you know, November. By the time you hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this month, as you hear this show, uh, the Brotherhood of Railway and Signalmen have also rejected the tentative agreement, which is on top of the Brotherhood of Maintenance Away employees who had rejected the deal, their deal a couple weeks ago. And uh, this union has actually rejected with a wider margin of 60% to 40%, uh, which you know, kind of shows some of the the leanings of the railway industry towards the rejection of these awful uh, rejections put forward by the PEB. Yeah, well, and it's really encouraging to see this because um, the BRS is the fifth largest rail union and the BMWE, the Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way Employees, is the third largest union. And as we mentioned on previous episodes, the two largest unions both have to wait a significant amount of time before right. they even get to vote on these kinds of things because of the endless uh, logistical hell of being federal rail employees. Yeah. So this, but this is big. Yeah, having the both the third and fifth largest unions rejecting it. That's I, I mean huge. It makes the lo- possibility of a railway strike much more likely. Uh, and, and, and so we heard directly from the BRS's president, Michael Baldwin, who said in a statement after the vote, quote, for the first time that I can remember, the BRS members voted not to ratify a national agreement and with the highest participation rate in BRS history. I have expressed my disappointment throughout the process in the lack of good faith bargaining on the part of the NCCC, as well as the part PEB 250 played in denying BRS members the basic right of paid time off for illness. And so again, it's, it's, we've, we've talked about this a million times, but yeah, it's, it's that same issue. Shocker. These workers think they should be able to go to a doctor with having, and they should be able to be paid while they go to the doctor and they shouldn't have to announce a month in advance Mm-hmm. when they're going to need to go to the doctor. So, I, I mean, I don't think it's surprising at all that these workers rejected it. Um, and I and one thing that I think, though, is really big about this is that even if BLET and Smart TD were to vote to accept the TA, uh, these unions striking would launch a national rail strike. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, and the, the the BMW E isn't going to stand for anything because they've been treated so badly ever since they were the first right. union to to reject the tentative agreement. They went back to the bargaining table with a proposal that just included some paid sick days and were rejected out of hand. And so Baldwin himself uh, from the other union told the Huffington Post, I anticipate they're going to tell me no as well. They've denied us ability to bargain in good faith for three years. That's not going to change now. So I, I have to imagine that if you're a member of any of these unions and you're keeping an eye on the way that these two unions are being handled, you're going to get a pretty good sense of the idea that the companies just don't want to budge. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, uh, the rank and file caucus, who I think we've cited a couple of times on here, uh, Railroad Workers United, which ha- includes workers from like all over the different unions. Uh, they've explicitly called for the workers in the two biggest unions, BLET and Smart TD, to reject the tentative agreement. Uh, and actually, recently, they put out a pretty cool resolution uh, where the, they adopted at their latest convention, specifically calling for the nationalization of the railroads, which like... Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what I'm talking I mean, about. Yeah, like they in their in their resolution they cite that rail infrastructure is publicly owned in many many other countries and point to, you know, as as uh, you know, Justin explained when we had that him on to talk about the rail strike that the freight companies have proven incapable of running the system properly and that their hostility to their workforce is not only, you know, bad in its own right, but it's also damaging to the economy and to all the customers of the freight rail system because it's making the system run like garbage. And so they they put out a statement saying, quote, be it finally resolved that RWU urges all labor unions, environmental and community groups, social justice organizations, rail advocacy groups, and others to push for a modern publicly owned rail system, one that serves the nation's passengers, shippers, communities, and citizens, end quote. And like, yeah, I mean, I think this, Rocks, And I think one of the things that we're really starting to see as we move towards that date, because for folks, uh, the it's now November 19th is the current expected like date for a potential start to a rail strike now for both mm-hmm. these two unions, which is like right around when the biggest two, I think, will be finishing voting. <laughs> um, so we'll see. I don't know if that November 19th date is going to stay around. But I think one of the things that's been really interesting, though, to see as this process has gone on and seeing how some of the stuff coming out of like the rank and file, like RWU has come out, is that like these unions, it almost it's really starting to feel like these companies have overplayed their hand because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it really feels like they felt like, look, we got we got the national uh, we got the the Railway Labor Act, we got the the government in our pocket. These folks have no leverage. We can just force them to do anything. We can force our terms down their throat and they can't do anything about it. And now the workers are just like, you know what? Yeah, striking would be really hard. It would be a huge pain in the ass. None of us want to do that. Congress seems like they're going to attack us if we do that. The media will get all over us. It'll be fucking horrible. But it will be better than the shit we're going through right now. And you know what? Maybe we need to go farther. Maybe we do need, as as RWU is saying, maybe we need to nationalize the railways. And so I think, honestly, in the long term, I think the companies are going to start to wonder, maybe we should have just given them those sick days. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I hope that that's the case. And I mean, not to, I mean, maybe I'm getting too speculative here. But I mean, as you said, the 19th is the earliest date. But who knows if they don't, you know, wait to make sure that the votes come in for the bigger unions and then do right. a bigger strike altogether, because maybe rolling strikes would be a little bit harder to coordinate. But who knows? We will see how that comes down. Now, 
I want to give a little warning about our next story that we're going to be covering because uh, there is going to be a discussion of suicide. And I I don't exactly know how long this segment is going to be, uh, but when I do the edit of it, I will try to put in there about how long it is in case anyone would like to skip it. If you want to skip ahead, about 33.15 is when this segment ends. So the uh, so UPS, a company that does shipping all around this country, is one of the biggest private shipping companies. I don't know if it's in the world, but at least in the United States, uh, it has you know been known very much so for its very poor working conditions and how the Teamsters are gearing up for a major strike next year. And I mean, on October fifth. There was a young woman who was working at uh, Worldport and was fired for falling asleep on the job, a product of overwork and and also the her health situation because she was uh, pregnant at the same time. And uh, when she was fired, uh, and this is where it gets dark, uh, she went into the restroom and never came out and her body was found later that evening. Yeah. Um, this story was really, really heavy because like, I mean, obviously it involves uh, a worker getting into this situation where things feel so helpless that, uh, this is, you know, where she felt the only, her only path out was, uh, and, I think the thing that is one of the things that's so frustrating about this to me is that you see, you see stories about, you know, workplace suicides or like suicide tied to somebody being fired. And it's always individualized. Like it's always, we just Mm -hmm. have to talk about this, this one person (laughs) that went through this like really hard time and boy, isn't that a shame. And, and then we give people, you know, the number for the national suicide hotline prevention hotline. And then we move on. Um, but like this like didn't come out of nowhere like she didn't just kill herself for no like j- because it was a random day like it like this happened because like you, you know she's working at USP UPS Worldport in Louisville which is one of their biggest facilities it's an absolutely enormous warehouse we've talked before on the show about the horrific conditions faced by people who are logistics workers uh, I mean, really anywhere. Cause you know, we talk about Amazon warehouse workers, how awful that work is. And it's no, like it's the same stuff at, at UPS for the workers that they face there. It's grueling labor, incredibly long hours with constantly like constant management harassment and huge pressure. And so like, I mean, this stuff happens because of capitalism like this happens because of the pressures that workers are put under where you're told if you can't perform get out you're fired and like go find another job which how how the fuck are people supposed to do that especially like this young woman who was pregnant like I I can totally understand how somebody might cat- catastrophize the situation of being fired because if you're already living paycheck to paycheck and you lose access to that paycheck and you're already probably having a lot of questions about like, how am I going to be able to juggle, like taking care of a baby and being able to work and being able to pay for all that. And then suddenly you just get told, Oh, by the way, you're fired. You have no access to money. And like, these are the, these are the situations under capitalism that create 
these deaths. Like this is, cause again, this is not something that's came out of, you know, un, cause like people will be like, this is why we have to address mental health. And sure, the U S needs way more mental health resources than it has. And they need to be available for free. But like this is, this death is a direct result of UPS's hyper exploitative model mm-hmm. and our country's complete lack of any sort of social wage, really of any sort of system to help people who get fired and, and, you know, have difficulty wondering where's their next paycheck going to come from? Are they going to be able to pay for food and for rent Uh, or, or are they, you know, going to end up out on the street? And so, I mean, this is, I'm getting away from all the notes I wrote for this, but like the, the thing that is just so maddening to me about this is that these sorts of deaths are never attributed to their systemic causes. And we just go on and it's just like, Oh, isn't that a tragedy? That's Mm -hmm. terrible. As if there's no societal responsibility for this. Like this situation happens all over the country every single day. And it's going to keep happening until we get rid of the situation that created it the material conditions created by capitalism. And it's like, I, I, I almost feel crass like tying it back to that because it's like, oh, you're bringing politics into this horrible tragedy of this, this woman's suicide. But it's just like, I mean, that's the ha- root cause. Ha- housing for all, healthcare for all, uh, you know, the a right to have work. I mean, that, and, and even the, like, the right to maternity leave uh, are all things that are, are necessary to, for our ability to live so even if you know the situation was like you know that she needed or was was going to be you know let go from this job there is there in other situations in socialist situations there are things to actually support people in that position whereas in our country in that situation you are just left to the whims and the catastrophizing uh, that that goes through your mind when you're fired it's hard. There's there's not a lot of of things that would convince you that those aren't true. Yeah. Well, and yeah. the the guardian talked to some workers at the facility, and they weren't shy about explaining the kinds of conditions that they have to go through, and and the way that the pressure that puts on them really wears them down. I mean, they said they'd been threatened with being fired for being late using the bathroom too often, complaining about working conditions. They said, quote, we're constantly being watched and scrutinized and everything that we do is never good enough. I have walked out of the building in tears before because I'm just so physically and mentally exhausted. And another worker said that the constant pressure to increase productivity along with the fact that the facility is understaffed means an unbearable weight on those workers. Working conditions in the facility are filthy and dangerous. There's no AC, which makes conditions even more intolerable during the summer they say quote i blew my nose sometimes and what comes out is brown and black from the dust that does not get cleaned up in there the machinery is old stuff falls on people stuff is always breaking like guardrails lockdown belts have holes in them i mean we talk a lot about conditions at amazon specifically but it does look like the general trend across u.s logistics industry in general is just leaning towards uh, you know, productivity, understaffing, uh, lean business models. And what that means is that safety basically gets thrown out the window on day one. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's, we know that workers have always been treated as disposable under capitalism, but as you know, the 
it becomes more and more difficult for companies to create ever further and larger and larger profit margins, they become more and more incentivized to treat workers as even more disposable than they were already treating them. Because mm-hmm. as you're saying, what's the easiest thing to cut corners on from a like a accountant's perspective? Oh, well, what's all this maintenance and safety and breaks and all this other stuff? What are we paying for this? We're not making any profit off of that. Just cut that off the list and there we go. Instant profit right there. And I mean, there was a worker who explained to the folks from the, the Guardian about the pressure they feel there saying, quote, people at UPS don't feel like they have any power over their lives or ability to sustain themselves with their work. And that with how demanding physically and emotionally it is to be working at a place with zero accountability. I would like to see UPS actually take better care of its employees and treat them like human beings instead of robots that just shuffle packages all night at enormous volumes. And yeah, I mean, I mean, and U.S. and the and you and the UPS denies having any culpability in this in this death, saying that they have the best in class safety standards, which to me really exemplifies how poor what best in class is in the United States even means. Yeah, and like the thing that's because this gets treated as just a given. Like this idea that, oh, this worker fell asleep on the job. Don't need to know anything else. Don't need to know anything else. That person, they were slacking. And so it's totally right and fine for the company to cut off their source of income and the only thing they have keeping them from starvation and being kicked out onto the street. That's the the general bargain that is set up as just a given, as a, as a, as a norm in our society, that that is a normal thing for a pregnant worker to a have to be going to work while pregnant just to support herself. And that B, if she has a momentary lapse in concentration at a job sorting packages, that the correct thing for the company to do the normal, acceptable, reasonable, moral, fine thing for the company to do is to throw her out on the street and that's like I don't I, I know I don't want to sound like I'm like turning this wholly into some moralizing, but it, well, like, it's a justification of the commodification of people. Yeah, it's 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 exactly. it's totally dehumanizing. It's it's not yeah. any sort of process that is actually natural or anything. It is naturalized by the capitalist you know method of of you know extraction, saying that people are only as good as they can be extracted from. Yeah. And and this is also like this is not just like we're not just highlighting this because it's like this is one incredibly tragic story and it is an incredibly tragic story and I do want to, you know, call UPS out for their incredibly callous response to it and for creating the conditions that led to this in the first place. But this is a, I mean, this is a problem that is getting worse. Like worker suicides have soared over the last few years and they've been getting worse every like every year has is a new record in this country mm-hmm. for worker suicides and i don't think that it's possible to separate that from all of the trends that we've talked about on this show about the way that capitalist companies in the united states are basically setting their entire business model their whole model of profitability on further and further labor intensification at every single turn, making every one of the jobs at their business, their plant, their whatever, you know, physical location they have making 
everyone do more and more people's jobs at a faster and faster rate with more monitoring, more supervisor pressure, and fewer and fewer social safety net items. So you are just putting more and more and more pressure on workers with absolutely no outlet, no line for hope. And so, yeah, I mean, these things are directly connected. Like this, this drive for profitability by these companies is what is leading to these increases in, in suicides. Like, it, th- yeah, there's a million other factors in, involved, but they all eventually tie back to the fundamental problem that our society tells people that, like, you have to go get some job working for somebody, and if you don't do it exactly the way that they want you to, and they're not 100% happy with your performance at all time, then it is fine and just for them to throw you onto the streets and hope that you die. Like, that's how our entire political economy is set up and is set up to be a, like at a level of a cultural assumption that it's barely even questioned. And that is killing thousands and thousands of people. And like this young woman's death is a singular tragedy and it should be focused on as her as an individual, but we can't like also lose sight of these systemic problems. Like UPS should be held accountable for this, but ultimately the only way that they will be and the only way that we're going to stop any of this. And like, again, that's why we look at this from a, a, the perspective we do is if we change the whole system, because these material incentives that these companies have to keep doing this are built in. Like again, like you, nationalize UPS, all the other companies are going to keep doing the same thing because it's those, it's that endless thirst for more and more profit at the expense of anything else, not just, you know, the individual survival of your workers, but perhaps the total collective survival of humanity and life on earth in toto. It's this death drive that we is an existential threat to all humanity. And like, I don't know. Fuck UPS management, and uh, this is why we have to destroy capitalism. Yeah, That's well, right. I mean, uh, speaking of unbelievably exploitative uh, employment situations, we'll move on to talking about the New York City MTA, which is enabling uh, wage theft, the number one type of theft in the country, from immigrant subway cleaners, people who are already widely disenfranchised and doing what I have to imagine is one of the most difficult and least desirable jobs I can think of, uh, just having seen firsthand what people get up to on New York subway cars. So a report came out from Documented New York, which is revealing this horrific pattern of wage theft and the abuse of these immigrant workers who were hired as subway cleaners and the complicity of the MTA therein. So in 2020, the MTA hired a series of contracting firms, who else, to sanitize subway cars, spending nearly $200 million. And these contractors in turn, hired largely immigrant workers, many of whom spoke little English, and then proceeded to do what basically every labor contracting firm in the history of the world has done, completely exploit them and steal an incredible amount of their wages. So New York State labor law requires that all contractors on public works pay a, quote, prevailing union wage, which in 2020 was in New York City was $28 an hour plus benefits, which includes any work performed on the subway. But workers told Documented New York that they were only paid $200 
$20 an hour and never received any benefits. One worker, Jose Luis Dominguez, explained that the abuse he faced from the contractor he was hired by uh, NV Maintenance Services. He said that workers were told they weren't allowed to drive to work together, were told to arrive half an hour before their shifts, for which they would not be paid, or be fired, and were never paid overtime. Yeah. Wow. That is one of the... I mean... One part of that is the one of the most classic ways that we see uh, places steal your wages, which is mm-hmm. telling you, okay, so we know you. We told you your shift starts at eight, but we need you to be there at seven thirty. And no, you can't clock in until eight. Like that, that sort of thing, illegal, extremely mm-hmm. illegal everywhere in the country. And yet, every day, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of workers who get hit by that same stuff. And like. Uh, he, yeah, Dominguez told, told documented and why quote, we weren't allowed to talk to each other. We weren't allowed to be friends. We weren't allowed to use our phones at the end. Things started to get even worse when we weren't allowed to ride to work together. End quote. That part that right really... there. I, I, I don't even like know for one, how do they enforce that besides like yeah. monitoring people coming to work and getting out of the same vehicle. But even then, like, I mean, I know why. It's so that they don't coordinate and talk about the awful working conditions, right. specifically a uh, collective action busting tactic. And but but the idea that they were not allowed to ride to work together is ridiculous. I mean, they're already being exploited. They're they're being underpaid. They're having wage theft. They have no benefits. And if they see that carpooling is something that would allow them to, you know, save a little bit of money amongst each other, that also becoming, uh, you know, illegal to the company uh, makes it just absolutely just ridiculous the way... And also, it's really hard for me to, to put into words how absurd that is well and the 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 company uh is playing every you know legal trick in the book uh really trying to to take every angle shot they can against the workers here because when dominguez spoke up about wage theft and oppressive conditions at work he and other workers were asked to sign a letter which of course was only provided in english that said they had been provided an employee handbook and agreed to its terms and when he said i never received a handbook he was just fired yeah, I mean, this is, I the, reading this article, I was just like, oh, it's the it's the wage theft like greatest hits. Yeah, like, like they're just ticking like every one of these ways that contracting firms abuse their workers and get out of paying them. Because again, they're paying these workers eight dollars an hour less than they're supposed to be, not giving them any of the benefits that mm-hmm. they're supposed to provided by labor law, and like. This again, this was not just one company because, like, we, yeah, NV Maintenance is who he worked for, but there was another contractor, LN Pro Services, who was doing the same work from the city, refused to provide workers PPE. Again, this is in 2020. Like, what, well, you know, you, you should have to provide workers PPE anyway, but this is before any of the vaccines existed. So mm-hmm. everyone was at maximum risk. Uh, I mean, like, and the numbers have panned the, out on that, that that the people in those situations have died disproportionately from mm-hmm. pandemic-related illness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the things, though, about this story that was so particularly glaring is because, like, up to this point, we've mostly just been describing this is how labor brokerage firms tip, uh, operate typically, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much. Like, it's kind of like the rule that they just treat all their workers like this. 
but this abuse was specifically endorsed by the MTA. Uh, like his documented NY found documentation showing that Stephen Pasilla, who was an MTA procurement official, told contractors, quote, as the acting chief procurement officer for New York City Transit, I hereby am telling you that car cleaning at terminal stations does not require prevailing wage to be paid, end quote. Like, why? There's no justification. It's just making shit up. I mean, the answer is probably, and now I will just say for our own sake, allegedly mm-hmm. uh, because this guy probably got like, maybe got a kickback or something because like there's no reason to do, to give them an exemption from prevailing wage laws. Like, because there was an argument basically that, well, they're, they're cleaning the subway cars, not the subway platforms. So it doesn't count, which is like, what? Yeah. That doesn't <laughs> like, make that's just any complete sense nonsense. Yeah. yeah. And, so in response, Dominguez and several other NV maintenance workers have filed a class action lawsuit against the company for its rampant wage theft. Dominguez uh, told Document in New York, I want justice for many people. The company as an entity left people without jobs, without income, not really caring if we have money for rent, money to feed our families. I would love for those families, for those coworkers who, like me, got fired for no reason to get compensated, end quote. And the only thing that I would like leave out from that is that like, it's good that, he's, that these folks are suing the company, and I hope they take them for all they're worth. But like, the city owes these people money, too, because the city is complicit in this. Right. And... So like they should have, the city should be involved in this lawsuit and have to make these workers whole as well, because like they were explicitly out there ke- telling the company, yeah, you don't have to pay a prevailing wage. Who cares? Like uh, it's, this is just so frustrating to see these like city officials working hand in glove with these labor contractors. Like, I know it's one of those things I can talk about it all the time. I know the capitalist state is out here working for the businesses, but it's still pretty glaring when you see this stuff, like, out in like the in you know in the open like this. Yeah, I mean if we ever have like a really coherent national labor movement, one of the big demands really needs to be like uh you know you you can't just launder uh responsibility through contracting firms. You, you know, yeah. every, everybody vertically integrated in a power structure needs to be responsible for what happens at the top and the bottom. Like, yeah. Well, and this is why we keep highlighting all of these examples is not because, you know, oh, we know uh, it's because, like, there are constant reminders, you know, like there, and we need to not only have, you know, all of this evidence because when we're doing educating, sometimes if we cite something from too long ago, people will be like, oh, that was so long. This is now. This is happening now. It's been happening forever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. we cannot ignore it. And it's one of the main reasons that we that we are so persistent in reporting these atrocious stories. Yeah. So I will say, I also just want to throw, you know, a hat tip out there to document in New York. This is, we've used their stuff a few times on here. They do a lot of really, really good reporting on, you know, groups of people that are often not really cared about by the mainstream media. So, uh, really glad that they're out there doing this sort of important investigative journalism. Um, yeah. And I guess speaking of, uh, of people not cared about by the mainstream media, how about uh, the U.S. military using modern-day slavery uh, reminiscent of the kafala system that we have covered 
many different times on this show. I mean, as far back as I think the episodes that we did our, our kind of slavery series were in like the late 70s, early 80s of the episode numbers, but uh, it, it also does not cease. And that, you know, the examples do keep coming. Yeah. So this is from a, a pretty big investigative report from, I was surprised, by NBC News, which is wow. kind of a mainstream outlet to be uh, looking at bad stuff the military is doing. Um, but so we've talked about the different ways in which slavery continues to exist around the world uh, in a bunch of different ways. You know, we've t- of course, pri- in the U.S., like the primary one is, of, is prison slavery, of course. That's been more or less normalized around the country. I think there's only one or two states that actually ban the use of slave labor. Um, although I believe there are a few voting on it this year. Uh <laughs> But um, we've also talked about and I, the actually, way that this I'm gonna gets. I'm going to stop in- you right there, real quick, because I that it has been happening, and one of the the pushbacks on that from people is they this could make prisons unviable. Like yeah, it's they, like they, they're really <laughs> concerned about whether or not prisons are a viable business plan. Yeah, I'm like that should be telling you a lot more <laughs> than it clearly is. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, but one of the things that we have consistently talked about is the way that migrant workers get trapped into modern slavery conditions. And that, that there are a whole host of different examples we've talked about, especially like Filipina domestic workers all over the world. That's a big problem. As Lena mentioned, the kafala system by the way in which largely South and, and Southeast Asian workers are imported into the Gulf monarchies to serve as their labor supply, uh, oftentimes not being paid and being trapped there with the seizure of their passports. But we even talked about similar things in the U.S. with work workers on agri- like tomato farms and onion like mm-hmm. growing operations where workers had the same thing they were brought in under false pretenses had their documents taken away from them and were forced to work for no wages and so i guess we probably shouldn't be surprised that since so much of the us empire's economy is propped up on reliance on slavery well the military that exists purely to protect and expand said imperial economy also relies <laughs> on similar slave labor. So this is, again, the, the, the structure of these, this relation is so similar to stuff that we've seen all over with the U.S. You've got foreign workers who are told by a labor broker that if they go to a foreign country and do some work, they can make more money than they ever think they could make at home. When they're brought there, suddenly they're charged a big fee, they have their passport taken away, and suddenly it turns out the job they were told about was not was bullshit, and the work they're actually doing is much harder for much lower pay for mm-hmm. much longer hours. So, like, this, on the U.S., like, military, though, we have to consider the scale of this, because... The U.S. empire is, is enormous. We have over 700 military bases that rely on thousands of poorly paid local and migrant workers to handle things like food service, construction, janitorial work, even security work on a lot of these bases is done by imported migrant labor. And like, so it, I guess it should really come as no surprise that these relations of work in the broader U.S. imperial economy get mirrored in these li- in microcosm in these U.S. military bases. Because, like, NBC did an investigation. They found that the military had processed nearly 1,000 reports of labor violations on foreign workers just in the year 2020. 
and that though they're required to report those violations, not a single one of the contractors who illegally trafficked workers was made public by the Pentagon. Like, they did their investigation, and then they hushed it up. Uh, Like, one of the examples that they used in this is this company, Tamimi Global, where they've received over $270 million in Defense Department labor contracts over the last 15 years, primarily for providing laborers for food service and janitorial work. And they keep getting these enormous contracts, despite the fact that the company has repeatedly, over the last 15 years, broken nearly every single labor law out there. I I mean, a former director of Tamimi Global pled guilty to wire fraud, money laundering, and witness tampering, which prompted a $13 million fine for the company. And yet, they still keep getting lucrative defense contracts to provide workers. Like... The workers provided by Tamimi to U.S. bases in the Middle East, this was largely centering on, on Mideast bases, so places like bases in Qatar, which is where uh, one of the U.S. fleets is, is uh, headquartered, in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, uh, places, places generally like that, where these workers told NBC's investigators that they were forced to work 12-hour days, seven days a week, often for less than half the, the fee that they were promised. They, when they arrived in at the bases, they were hit with massive fees for their travel to the base. That's a classic move, mm-hmm. and had their passports taken away so that they couldn't leave. They've reported being beaten by company guards, dealing with bed bug infestations, and having no access to working bathrooms. And of course, you have the same response. So, a a U.S. contract worker not working for. Uh, Tamimi, but working for another contracting firm, identified this these conditions and reported it to her superiors, and she was fired and sent back to the U.S. rather than anything being done about the conditions these workers are suffering under. Yeah, I mean that that all. I mean, and the, the list just keeps going on. I mean, there was a 21 year old worker from Bangladesh who was offered 660 dollars a month to work at a restaurant on a U.S. base in Kuwait in 2016, and then uh, getting to the base, the company took the, uh, took his passport, fine fined him ten thousand dollars for the flight, ten thousand dollars for the flight. And forced mm-hmm. him to work twelve-hour days every day for three years for barely two hundred and fifty dollars a month, which is less than half what what he was promised. And then, what is that two hundred and fifty dollars a month going towards? A ten thousand dollar fee for co- for flying in in the first place. I mean, these lies are not, you know, uncommon. I mean, they're 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 holy. They're American as apple pie. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. even know if apple pie is American, but you know, I mean, still. <laughs> Still, I mean, even in uh, talking to, like, migrant workers here uh, in the U.S., the lies are constant. You know, people promised housing or, or extra stipends or benefits are often, you know, they show up to these jobs and then are it's like, oh, sorry, there was a miscommunication between the contractor and the company, and now you're mm-hmm. just going to get this basic wage and nothing else. So well, yeah, it, it, it amounts to slavery. It amounts to indentured mm-hmm. servitude. And, uh, I mean, we had a 2019 Army Inspector report which cited a contractor that provided food service in Kuwait and said the company, quote, was aware it enacted an exorbitant recruiting recruiting fee that created a state of enslaved bondage for its employees. 
The report, the report also noted that workers did not have access to potable water and faced insect infestations, and the contractor was not named in the report and continues to receive DOD contracts. I mean, it's like, it seems to me that if you're a contracting firm for the DOD, uh, you could just do anything you want because they're basically saying, like, you don't have to follow the law. Like, it reminds me of, you know, when we heard that... Um, the MTA was like, hey, look, you don't have to pay prevailing wage, uh, but we just don't get to see that email this time. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I think is interesting about this case is because, like, there's so many of these situations where there's that level, like we were talking about before, where places, they just use the labor contractor contracting somebody else, contracting somebody else, and mm -hmm. they just say, I didn't know anything about that. I had no idea. We are just as shocked as you are. But in this case, we have like multiple inspection reports right. from the Army that is just like, oh, yeah, so a bunch of our contractors are basically enslaving their laborers. Should we do anything about it? And essentially, they appear to have been told, no. And specifically what you should do is not tell anyone and make sure no one knows about this. Uh, like they mentioned, NBC mentioned in their investigation that security contractors, Triple Canopy, Vectris Systems, and Aegis have all received hundreds of millions in defense contracts to provide security guards and logistics services to U.S. air bases using foreign labor. All of them have done the same shit. They seize workers' passports, force them to work long days for little pay, and refuse to provide proper equipment or medical care. And just like Tamimi Global, all of these companies continue to receive contracts, despite, like, right out there, open, like, there are documented cases mm -hmm. of this clear abuse, and yet the Pentagon just keeps being like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. And, and it's, it's one of those things where because this is with the DOD, and because this is specifically about providing services to the U.S. military, it's, I know it's very easy, I think, for people to fall into this very cynical, like, look at this, just be like, well, of course that's what's happening. And it's like, oh, what do we want? Better labor conditions for, like, the empire's, like, soldiers? And it's like, no, ultimately we want to end the U.S. empire, but, like, we also don't want these people to be enslaved in service of it. <laughs> right. Like, we know that, you know, the U.S. military exists to serve the interests of capital, and so, of course, it's not a surprise that the companies that it hands out massive contracts to seek to maximize how much of that contract they can skim off for themselves, and what better way to do that than to simply not pay your workers? And the easiest way to do that, of course, is to use migrant workers based on the assumption, well, then no one will care. And that's why I think it's so important to highlight that, because we need to make the assumption that no one cares about migrant workers, a false assumption. And I know that's a really uphill battle. It's, you know, no one we can do solely with our podcast. But, like, it, even at the same time that we, we call for the end to the U.S. empire, the withdrawal of all U.S. military bases, the return of all foreign-held land to the, the countries that are currently being occupied by the U.S. military, at the same time, you know, we have to fight for these companies that are making millions and in some cases probably billions of dollars mm -hmm. profiting off of slavery that they be held accountable for that and that these workers who have been so horrifically abused 
be compensated and and given reparations and and seek some form of justice. Well, yeah, it's it's the same kind of situation with uh, extractive industry. Like I think we should end pulling coal out of the ground, but in right. the meantime, coal workers absolutely deserve better wages, benefits to be taken care of, to not be exploited or manipulated, and it, you know. There's, um, especially within industry in the modern technological era, there's always going to be at least two, three registers that you have to kind of, uh, uh, be cognizant of as you assess the situation. Yeah. So if you needed another reason to want to end the U S empire, mm-hmm. yeah, here, here's another one on the pile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unexist to America and shifting gears only a little bit. Uh, we're, we're going <laughs> to be moving yeah, from, from, from the sword arm of the U S empire to its training ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the pen arm. I'm not sure. Yeah, yes, I wasn't <laughs> sure how to, exactly how to go with that linguistic construction. We're going to be covering, uh, Yale grad workers who have filed for an NLRB election, which, uh, this grad student union is said to represent 4,000 student workers. And this yeah. filing has actually come with a huge amount of support with 3,000 of the 4,000 students signing cards for recognition after many years of organizing. In fact, previously, they had tried to organize many different departments separately, but because of the way that the uh, you know the U.S. state sides with capital, and I guess in this case the trainers of 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 future capital holders. Uh, they said that that was not a way that they could organize, and that they had to re- organize everyone. And so they hit the ground trying to make sure that they could do that. And since uh, 2017, when that was the when they had filed for those initial elections and been denied their their um, democracy. Uh, the union has since reorganized as a larger grad students union, and and we're looking forward to uh, that very possible win with the amount of support that they've seen. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where it's like Yale, you know, kind of sucks <laughs> because you, like if you look at what's the training ground for all of like the the biggest ghouls in the U.S. like State Department. It's Yale and Harvard pretty much. Mm -hmm. But that being said, there's a lot of people that go to those schools that are not Henry Kissinger or like, uh, the Bush family. Yeah. George Bush. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like the fact that all these grad workers are unionizing and it's such high levels, I think is a really another good sign in this big wave that we're seeing of grad workers unionizing across the country. So like mm-hmm. uh, student worker uh, Camila Marcone told the Yale Daily News, quote, we're in a really special moment right now because everyone is really excited. It's been especially exciting to see all the first year grad wor- student workers come in and immediately go, yes, this is something I really want to be a part of. The pandemic meant that so many of us were taking on even more responsibilities without extra compensation. So it shifted many of our perspectives on unionization, end quote. Wild, the material conditions creating <laughs> changes in consciousness yet again. <laughs> yeah, um, we see it all the time. Yeah, and so... 
you know, despite the reputation of everybody at Yale coming from wealthy backgrounds, like the workers have called out the school for its low pay, its lack of dental health care coverage for grad student workers, and the lack of any sort of accountability process when problems come up. And this is very similar to issues we've heard about from grad student workers at, at like Harvard, Columbia, Brown, MIT, all these other major research universities that have also recently unionized. And so like, this past week, on Tuesday, October 25th, as Lena, as you were saying, the student workers delivered over 3,000 signed union cards of the 4,000 total students to the Connecticut office of the NLRB to call for a official election. And this is by far the highest level of support the union movement at Yale has ever received. And this is a movement I was surprised reading through the, the articles in the like, Yale's paper. There have been folks on their campus trying to get a union there for grad student workers for 30 years. Like, granted, that was only really ruled allowable by the NLRB back in 2016, but that's, I mean, pretty wild that folks have been been fighting that fight for that long and that they're now, you know, so close to actually finally getting over the, the, the line there. Um, and so workers held a rally calling on Yale to agree to neutrality in the election and not to attempt to bust the union by dragging the process out as long as possible. And of course the workers are worried about that because of Yale's history. Yale has previously hired anti-union law firm Proskauer Rose to fight other union efforts on campus, which failed by the way, because most of Yale's like non-student workers are unionized with unite here. Um, so like and and also earlier this semester the dean of the graduate school of arts and sciences sent out an anti-union FAQ to students attacking the organization drive so but now that the workers have reached 75% signed cards like that's huge so uh, obviously more than clearing the threshold for a a union election with the NLRB. And if successful, if these workers do, you know, get to have their election, it's not broken up by Yale or delayed infinitely by some stupid legal process. They'll, these workers will become, I believe the third largest new bargaining unit of the year might not, it's, I think it would definitely be top five because like the MIT grad student union, I believe is number one followed very closely by JFK eight. Okay. And then I think if this is successful, these 4,000 workers would become the third largest. So that would be, be really big. And so like, you know, well, on the one hand, we certainly think that Yale as an institution should be seized by, by the students and the workers there and handed over to the city of New Haven, uh, and you know, broadly just the region to be run as an instrument of the people in the meantime, <laughs> Uh, the workers being unionized there would be a really big step. And to that point of the way that material conditions can affect changes in consciousness, the fact that these workers seeing all this extra work piled on them during the pandemic made them rethink their thoughts about unionization. Seeing the benefits of having a union, I think, you know, there's some potential there along with the necessity for socialist agitation to help move some of the people at that institution away from it, at the very least, some of the more reactionary stuff that's being taught there. Well, and when we talk about organizing, 75%, or usually 70%, but I mean, 75 is a little bit better, is the rate that you really want to make sure to get the number of yeses. That is what mm -hmm. you want to file with. Uh, I mean, you obviously want to file with more, but if you, you know, when it comes to a, a minimum standard of pretty much guaranteeing you'll win, uh, 75 percent is a really good number because what that does is it allows a buffer of when the union busting comes down of about 20 to 25 percent 
uh, loss of support and still, you know, coming out with that victory. So I think that it is pretty reasonable to be optimistic that this union will come into fruition and get state recognition. Absolutely. So good luck to the Yale student workers, and uh, hopefully we'll have another big union win to report on soon. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to see this kind of stuff popping off in uh, Connecticut, because isn't that the state with like the biggest wealth disparity in the whole country? I wouldn't be surprised. And so, you know, you have all the money from New York City and like the Greenwich, Mm -hmm. Stamford area. So, yeah, no, it'd be great. But yeah, um, well, I guess as we normally do towards the end of our episodes, we will go to covering Starbucks and the amount of bullshit that it is trying to hand down to the workers. Uh, We had talked a little bit last week about how Starbucks was bargaining in bad faith. Well, they have continued. And as far as we can tell, they are going to continue to uh to do this sort of bad faith bargaining and uh you know as the union itself calls starbucks's bluff about whether or not the workers are ready to actually co- uh you know to collectively demand better conditions in putting and put it into a contract but I mean the the repression is not ending. I mean they've refused to bargain in so many ways, and I, I think that they're probably going to continue. Yeah. So we mentioned last week very briefly because it was this was news was just coming out when we were recording mm-hmm. that la- the beginning of last week was supposed to be the start of bargaining at many of these stores after Starbucks made a, a sudden about face at the beginning of October and claimed they were ready to bargain. Um, of course, that turned out to be a lie. Um, because in Buffalo, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Louisville, Lakewood, California, and numerous other locations all throughout the week, Starbucks reps and their littler Mendelssohn uh, union-busting friends showed up hours late to many of these, these meetings, then left immediately upon complaining about workers joining the bargaining sessions virtually over Zoom. This ignored, like, ignores the fact that, A, you shouldn't be able to object to any worker attending a bargaining meeting in any manner. Like, they're a worker. They're materially involved. They have a right to be there. Uh, but also, they ne- there was never any agreement between Starbucks and the workers beforehand that there would not be folks attending via Zoom. That's just a thing that the company made up. Um, and, and like worker organizer Michelle Eisen told Truth Out that that's never been a problem before, saying, quote, I joined the power and baseline bargaining session virtually, and we had no problems. Why it's suddenly an issue for Starbucks and their lawyers just doesn't make any sense, end quote. I mean, and, why it's suddenly an issue for Starbucks and their lawyers is because Starbucks and their lawyers are only interested in sussing out issues that they can claim you're causing. Like, yeah. They're just trying to be disruptive. But I mean, I get what the worker is saying. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think probably one of the most frustrating aspects of this is not just the fact that the company is to bargain in bad faith, which is in line with everything else Starbucks has been doing, but they have also had the gall to file 10 ULPs against the union, <laughs> claiming that the union is is not bargaining in good faith and that they violated a prior agreement not to broadcast or record bargaining sessions there's not evidence that that that's happening i mean i the it's such a stretch to say that someone participating via you know a a call in is some sort of surveillance tactic that's ridiculous yeah. Yeah, and so like the union responded to the charges saying, quote, 
Workers did not broadcast bargaining, nor did workers record bargaining. In fact, Starbucks refused to bargain at all with workers and walked out of the room in multiple cities, end quote. So I Yeah, there was no bargaining I, frankly, that happened. Yeah, like I don't I don't think these charges will go anywhere. Uh, none of Starbucks's previous ULP charges against the union have stuck. They've the ones that have made it to a judge have all been dismissed. Uh, this I think is just, just, you know, another in a long, long line of Starbucks's bizarre PR war to extend this bargaining process as long as possible without any real results and try and wear down the union's resolve. Yeah. The only caveat to that is a very recent ruling by a judge, which said that if a worker, yeah, yeah, if a, if a worker talks to a reporter that then Starbucks can, force the worker and the journalists to turn over all communications uh, severely just like just throwing out the the anti-surveillance policy of the NLRA at the very least I mean this this is an absolutely ridiculous ruling I mean we have Kathy Creighton, uh, the director of Cornell's Industrial and Labor Relations Lab in Buffalo, uh, who told the Washington Post, I keep rereading the judge's order and saying, this can't be right. I've never heard of this in 30 years as a labor attorney. I don't know how else to say it. It takes my breath away. I mean, it and end quote what what she's referring to there is the unprecedented allowing of surveillance of the workers and the seizure of journalistic you know integrity uh the ability to ha- to have anonymity of your sources at the very least i i am honestly floored by this and and if this precedent stands this is not only going to be on top of the uh supreme court's ruling that that workers basically have to pay to be on strike, but also that if they talk about working conditions in public, that that is subject to disciplinary punishment from Starbucks or the or any company. Yeah, there's so much about this ruling that's just completely bizarre. Uh, like, look, I mean, it's it's it, it it is fitting with the role of the judiciary in attacking workers, but usually they're a bit more circumspect about it. They're usually not this, you know, blatant mm-hmm. and just out there like because first off, this ruling is coming out of the middle of a case adjudicating ULP charges against Starbucks. <laughs> like that's that's something I think needs to be framed here. This is a ruling by a judge in a case saying ju- that like there are Violations of labor law committed by Starbucks, not by the workers, by the company. And this judge is like, okay, well, as part of discovery for the trial, you Starbucks workers, the ones who are the victims in this case, must give every piece of communication you had while you worked at Starbucks with a reporter over to the company, not to, you know, the state or some... not that that would make it any better but like some theoretically third party right no you have to give these communications to the company like and and that's actually just to as a correction i don't believe that the order actually compels the journalists themselves to turn over the information and i think partially because they know they would lose that Mm -hmm. because uh many states including new york which is where this case is being tried have shield laws for journalists that protect them from being legally told that they have to hand over their sources unless it's a national security case, in which case the government can just throw you in a prison forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
But like, so this is, <laughs> I think they're really only directing this at the workers because A, they knew that the journalists had legal protection, but also because they knew that going after the journalists themselves would cause this to completely explode because the journalists, you know, uh, e- you have the ones who are sympathetic to the workers, but also the ones none of whom want to be forced to prevent present their sources in court right. would get really, really loud about this case. Well, and, and, and so by focusing on the workers, it's really only labor reporters that I see talking about right. this, not well, anybody yeah. else. I mean, journalists by nature of their job have platforms. That's one of the biggest things is that right. union members and Starbucks workers by and large are not Twitter celebrities, but people right. who write for the Washington Post or Mother Jones or any other random publication, left, right, or center, they are Twitter celebrities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, we do have at least the CWA coming out, the, the News Guild, along with the yeah. CWA coming out and condemning mm-hmm. this ruling, saying that it is an attack on workers and reporters. Um, but though, I mean, and- obviously, like th- what Dan was saying is very true that the ruling itself probably does not actually directly affect reporters, but it does indirectly uh, affect reporters as now workers are less likely to feel safe that they can even talk about their working conditions. Well, exactly. and I mean, reporters are also going to feel less safe talking to workers who are unionizing as well, because right. it's like if your sources get leaked by the sources, that's still, uh, you know, damaging to your journalistic integrity and reputation. Exactly. And that's ultimately the point mm-hmm. of the ruling. Like this is this is what Starbucks was aiming for by asking for those records. This mm-hmm. is what the judge was aiming for by presenting this ruling is to make it so that workers who are thinking about unionizing are afraid to talk to reporters because they're worried that that communication might get subpoenaed. And that's, if this, if this ruling holds up, that will be a completely reasonable fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because, and this is the thing, like, I don't want to put journalists on a pedestal like so many of them end up doing. Uh, Mm. but, but like that comedians really, (laughs) like that platform's important because one of the things that we talk about so much is that like a big part of winning a strike about winning a contract campaign, of being able to put any sort of pressure on a company when you're in an organizing drive is the ability to get your story out, to have your Mm -hmm. side of the issue heard. And if you are worried that if you talk to any reporter about what you're doing, that that shit could get get you subpoenaed, then you're going to be a lot less likely to do that. And that means that your community is going to be a lot less likely to hear about your drive. And that ultimately could have effects that, you know, make it harder to to win union elections, even harder than it already is. So... Well, and and on top of all that, it's not like a lot of reporters can be relatively hostile to labor as they interact with them. Not every journalist is Jonah Furman or Alex Press. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this is being appealed. It might get overturned. I certainly hope it gets overturned. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is an absolutely wild ruling and yet another case of Starbucks using the courts uh, to attack workers. Yeah, and also this week, I mean, workers at the uh, New York City uh, roastery had gone on or went on strike because there was a bed bug infestation in the store, and I mean, management insisted that they stay open without resolving the problem. Uh, workers also cited that there was a moldy ice machine that the management Ugh. continued to use without having cleaned it, as per you know workers' request for you know safety standards, and so the workers remained out on strike all week uh, yeah like this is just gross <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah 
bedbugs I know, freak I, me we, out. Like can't we've done the thing it. like if you're going to serve like food and drinks, then you can't be having these unsanitary uh, like conditions in your facilities, which that's true. And it's great that the workers are protesting at that. But this is like, I don't care what your business is. If you're, if you have a bed bug infestation, you need to close yeah, absolutely. and resolve that. There's, <laughs> like, yeah. there's no business that's impervious to bed bugs. Yeah. Like, yeah, it just, the idea of telling people like, the, your workers come to you because this is the thing. Even if you're like a manager who's just like fuck this union, I hate this, I, I hate the worker. You know, like the our, our caricature of mm-hmm. the of the the shitty boss. If your workers come to you and you're like, look, there are fucking bed bugs <laughs> like all over this place. We have to get rid of them. And your response is, ah, don't worry about it. Let's open anyway. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Yeah, uh, truly negligent to not only the workers themselves, but anyone who comes into the building. Uh, yeah, I mean, Absolutely. it's characteristic of, of Starbucks's, you know, not not caring about anyone but their bottom line. Um, yeah, but um, I mean, when we talk about you know workers fighting back, like these workers who have gone on strike, we have another way that workers are fighting back. When we we had talked about previously how Will Westlake had been fired for wearing a uh, suicide awareness pin. Uh, there have been workers all throughout the country in Oklahoma, Washington, Vermont, Kansas, Tennessee, New Jersey, and Washington have all decided that, hey, you know what, to, to really push back on this, we're going to wear that exact pin. And you know what? Uh, for one, I mean, I guess we haven't seen those workers get fired yet, but also, are they going to fire them all? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love this. Like it, this is a coming out of a, a small story in, uh, in, in these times, just documenting, you know, how workers are pushing back against this. I love this sort of, of organized disobedience to nonsense directives from the boss, because I like, this is one of those things that workers can do a very simple thing. Is this going to ultimately overturn the social relations of production at Starbucks? No, but it's one of those things where they can do this. They are breaking Starbucks's stupid nonsense rule that is probably illegal, uh, you know, banning people from wearing a suicide awareness pin. But that's not something that a work that like a customer is going to see and be like, that person is breaking a workplace safety rule or whatever. <laughs> like no, no customer, no person reading a story about this is going to be like, those workers were being unreasonable. But if you suddenly start firing a dozen workers because they were wearing a suicide awareness pin, like it's bad enough to do that to one person. But like you're going to do that to like a dozen workers and, and you don't think there's going to be any media backlash to it. So I really love that these workers are doing this. Yeah. Also, I mean, this shows uh, collective action and I mean, if Mm -hmm. anything, this strengthens Will Westlake's uh, stance that, you know, he was speaking to the demands of, of everybody because one of the things about collective action is even as an individual, you, I mean, in, it's harder to prove this, but if you are speaking on behalf of, of workers, uh, you actually do have protections and uh, clearly what these workers are showing is that Will Westlake was representing what they believed and that his firing was unjust. And so mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. that that is a, a really great way to to show solidarity and push back even with a legal framework. But 
to move to our final little bit about Starbucks, we are going to prove once again I'm great at predicting the future uh, because we have increased the number <laughs> of, of stores to 256, which we had mentioned at the end of last week, where there are uh, where on Tuesday, October 25th, workers at the 22nd and South Starbucks became a, the sixth union store in Philadelphia. And uh, in that same day, workers voted 11 to 1 to join the union at the Irving and Ashley store in Chicago. And so, yeah, now we are at 256. <laughs> We've got that nice round computer number. Yeah, That's right. I love a good computer number. I love something <laughs> that can be a, a color value or an integer limit and a really old video game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I know Speaking it's like one of those of things, memes. oh, this is... Yeah, oh, yeah. so it, it's time for the meme review. That's right. And it's it's Halloween, folks, so of course we got to have some Halloween memes in here. <laughs> so... I like this one. It's an, pretty much an all text meme, but I appreciated this. So this is from the account Daily Union Elections or at Union Elections on Twitter. We are a great resource if you want to follow the nitty gritty detail of who is filing for union elections. Mm-hmm. And they announced uh, this last week breaking 133,316 666 demons working for Hell Incorporated are forming an independent union as the multiplanar union of allied demons. <laughs> <laughs> and so. They've got this screenshot here that looks like a, it's formatted like the little official things on the NLRB's webpage. And so it's a listing for Hell Incorporated. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah, all that number of employees, region, location, the underworld, region assigned, region 66, beyond the mortal plane, <laughs> unit sought, included. All full-time, regular part-time, and per-demon demons, including, but not limited to, demons in the following classifications and performing the specified job functions of demons of fate, incubi and succubi, wandering groups or armies of demons, can include multiple regions in hell, familiars, druids, cambions, and other demons that are born from the union of a demon with a human being, liar and mischievous demons, demons that attack the saints, and demons that try to induce old women to attend witches' sabbaths, excluded... Lucifer himself, all guard demons and supervisors defined in the act, and all other employees. <laughs> <laughs> I love this because uh, me and some some comrades have a little bit of a, a running joke about you know just the idea of of different like fantasy situations or like role play situations, like role play po- uh, role play like tabletop games uh, where you could you know form unions in re- in kind of more ridiculous situations, and the the unions of hell is is one of the ones that is is very fun to think of um, i'm just glad uh in- incubus got included they need a break because they're not very relevant <laughs> anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's right <laughs> well uh in contrast to not being relevant this next meme is incredibly relevant where uh i mean actually you know what i'm gonna let dan explain this one because he's the the star trek nerd oh okay so this is a two-panel meme from Deep Space Nine, and it's really just a focus shift. Uh, so you've got the first meme. You've got Captain Cisco is is sitting there. He's got like a a mug of a drink in his hands. He's he's deep in thought, and the camera's very focused on him. And it's just he's labeled workers on minute nine of their ten minute break. 
And then in the second panel, the focus shifts. So now he's no longer in focus. It's the background. And, and sitting in the back is Worf just staring daggers at him and he's labeled managers. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of uh, the many different iterations of the meme is workers should take all 40 minutes of their 10-minute break. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. And then uh, yeah. our next meme is one of my favorite formats, which is Kramer's red apartment room, <laughs> yeah. where you have Jerry squinting outside the apartment asking Kramer, Kramer, what's going on in there? And then in this one, it's just a nuclear explosion. <laughs> and then at the bottom, it says, build back better, Jerry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, oh, mostly man, in response to the incredible warmongering of the Democratic Party and pushing us closer and closer to nuclear war with uh, with Russia. Well, yeah. well the, te- uh, the Telegraph just announced that we're uh, putting a bunch of dial a payload uh, ballistic yeah. missiles in a bunch of NATO countries like Turkey, Italy and Germany, which is uh, not cool and good. Yeah, and I mean, not to give the Republicans a break because they only don't want nuclear war with Russia so that they can have nuclear war with China. Uh, this is a, 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 per, a pervasive part of the U.S. capitalist system where they would rather uh, blow the fuck out of our world instead of come to an understanding with other and, and de-escalate and actually you know, move towards peace. Well, and it's not even like the Democrats don't hate China, too. Like, Nancy Pelosi is one of the biggest China hawks in the U.S. government. She's an absolute psycho about it. So it's just, it's all over, you know? Isn't, isn't it cool that we get to have gallows humor about the nuclear end of the world, just like our parents and grandparents did? <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> oh, Maybe no. they'll bring back MASH, too. Who knows? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I mean, with, uh, you know, kind of following up on that and, uh, you know, the ways in which many... Americans are taught to actually deal with these these policies is uh, we have a two panel where this girl has fallen on some sidewalk and dumped her her lunch all over the uh, the sidewalk and she is labeled Americans and the stuff all over the sidewalk is labeled systemic failures of capitalism and then it zooms in on her on the second panel and it says goddamn communists it's like. <laughs> Yo, the this is this is always what I see when when trying to uh, to talk about the ways in which you know communism is for peace. Like the the communists and socialists are the people who are fighting for peace. And well, it, uh, you know, I, go ahead. It, it just reminds me of the Facebook group uh, "Capitalists Attacking Socialism" by describing <laughs> capitalism again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, this is the same thing. You have the people because, like, anytime I accidentally hear the you know mainstream political rhetoric from the U.S., it's always people being like, "The communist Democrats are the reason that the prices in the supermarket are through the roof." I'm like, "What? The communist <laughs> Democrats are the reason the Price is Right is no longer hosted by Bob Barker." <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nobody likes Drew Carey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah and uh and so to continue with our spooky season memes we have a, a meme format that's been going around which is the spirit halloween uh you know costume 
uh, template thing. Oh, yeah. And it's always just a it's a generic version of something. And this one just says union steward. And it shows, you know, you know, it's a guy in a hard hat or maybe a bump cap. And he's wearing his vest and, and uh, his jeans. He's got keys on his belt loop. And it says, well, I like that he's got the. Uh, is that I think that's like a Harley, Harley Davidson, Davidson yeah, thing. thing on the zipper. Yeah, yeah. And it says Union Steward comes with Wine Garden Rights cards, hard hat with union stickers, spicy attitude with management. <laughs> that's yeah. my favorite one because like if you ever like see really good uh uh you know uh uh, display of unions on like TV or in media, the best thing that they do is just like cuss out the manager constantly. <laughs> that's my favorite well, union thing. And that's also, I feel like the most important like attribute to being a good steward mm-hmm. is maintaining that spicy attitude with management and not getting too chummy with them. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I can tell you the number one thing that would make me disappointed in any uh, union leadership would be to see them palling around with the bosses. That's like, fuck that. You need to be like threatening to redacted. <laughs> Shut, uh, you need to be acting out take of pocket well, if you want my respect. T- yeah. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to end their white-collar crime syndicate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there we that, go. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and I mean, I encourage all of our listeners, if you're part of a union and you see, you know, like kind of weak union stewards, run for those positions, folks. You're going to do a better Absolutely. job than them. You do class struggle unionism, and even if you have to learn a bunch, like, it's going to be worth it to get someone who's actually going to fight in power in ed- educating all of the other workers. But, uh, you know, that will be the end of this episode. And we want to thank everybody who supports our show on Patreon because that is ex- that is how our show exists we're entirely listener supported and if you would like to support us and don't you can go to patreon.com slash work stoppage and give us five dollars a month get access to all of our overtime episodes and all of our interviews we had just done an interview with a royal mail worker in this past week so if you're interested in hearing that full thing you can become a patron jump in the discord it's free and write us a review anywhere you can actually put together a uh, spirit halloween costume uh, meme with a five-star review of our podcast uh, you can follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod, listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity for spooky season. Solidarity, everybody. Happy Halloween. The future sticks.
Thank you.